America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Ulliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also joining you from Brussels. Today, we are returning to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. It has been one year since an uneasy ceasefire put an end to a restarted war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. This conflict is probably the longest running in uh, post-Soviet Eurasia. It has killed thousands. It has displaced hundreds of thousands. It began... um, Back in the 80s, uh, the fighting between Azerbaijanis and Armenians was triggered when the ethnic Armenian majority in Nagorno-Karabakh, back when it was still in the Soviet Union, demanded that control of the region be transferred by Moscow to Armenia from Azerbaijan. The war that followed raged until 1994, uh, ended with a ceasefire. Armenia gained the upper hand at that time. It had captured Nagorno-Karabakh, and it also had control of seven districts that surrounded it. The two and a half decades that followed were characterized by troubled calm, periodically disrupted with outbreaks of grave violence. Both sides reinforced their military positions and built up relationships with regional partners in what was usually thought of as a frozen conflict. Azerbaijan in particular deepened its bonds with its Turkish allies. On the 27th of September 2020, Azerbaijan and Armenia returned to blows. The ensuing level of violence had been unseen since the 1990s. Nearly 7,000 people were killed, bringing the total dead in the conflict to more than 20,000 people. A Moscow-brokered ceasefire eventually stopped the fighting. When the shooting ended, Azerbaijan had recaptured the seven districts Armenia had held since the 1990s and made significant inroads into Nagorno-Karabakh itself. The losing side, Armenia, was plunged into a political crisis as angry citizens accused the government of capitulation. The ceasefire was agreed just a little over a year ago on November 10th of 2020. The Armenian political situation has stabilized somewhat, but it's been a tough year with Iraqi peace becoming steadily more uneasy. The political status of the Nagorno-Karabakh region remains contested and negotiations on very basic things like the provision of humanitarian aid have been all but abandoned, including in the face of the continuing COVID crisis. Civilians are still struggling to secure basic necessities. And in the conflict where about one third of the inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh were displaced and the Nagorno-Karabakh's economy has shrunk to a quarter of its former size, people continue to struggle. Most recent developments are even more dispiriting. While the force of 2,000 Russian peacekeepers has remained in place and has prevented any escalation in the Karabakh region itself, their mandate remains unclear. Meanwhile, Armenian and Azerbaijani troops continue to exchange fire along their state borders, most recently in southern Armenia near Nahichavan, an Azerbaijani enclave close to Turkey, Armenia, and Iran. Both Baku and Ankara plan to join Nahichavan to Azerbaijan's main territory with a transportation corridor, as called for by the ceasefire deal. Although back in October, it seemed that a border demarcation plan was in the making, these hopes now seem at best on hold. So here we are. Is the ceasefire in Nagorno-Karabakh failing? Does another war look likely? What can local and international players do to encourage the resumption of negotiations? Joining us this week is our Tbilisi-based colleague, Olesia Vartanian, who will lend us her formidable experience to help answer these questions and more. 
Alessia is Crisis Group's senior analyst for the Southern Caucasus. She has worked on its conflicts for more than a decade. She is particularly knowledgeable about the whole difficult question of breakaway regions, including Nagorno-Karabakh. She last spoke to us in season one as one of our first guests. In fact, I think she's our first return guest. So, Alessia, welcome back to War and Peace. Very nice to, to be back with you. So we've seen a lot of skirmishes at the line of contact, and they seem to be getting worse. It's been a tough November. It's not quite clear how many people have been killed, but it is clear that people have died. And what seems to have happened in mid-November was Russia brokered a successful last-minute ceasefire deal. But what is happening that is leading the conflict to escalate again? Why do they keep fighting across the borderlines? What have been taking place during the last one year, and this is both inside the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone and also aligned with newly emerged state borders, is that both sides have been building positions. In some places, uh, the process was faster, and one could already see soldiers building even trenches. And in some other areas, they are still establishing these positions. The most uh, kind of... Uh, problematic part uh, of the front line, it has been the state border. And in fact, this is the area that previously was controlled by the Armenian forces. Uh, it's a uh, Kelbajar district, which is now back to the Azerbaijani side. And it borders the state of Armenia. And this is where we have been seeing master incidents, especially since late spring. And every time they have clashes, the fighting uh, is just more brutal. We have more serious weaponry being used, including artillery and some armored vehicles uh, in most uh, recent clashes. So are they preparing for the next war? Why are they reinforcing their positions? It doesn't look like uh, it's a new war. It's uh, rather an attempt to take over the best positions you can. And the area we have been seeing must uh, movement taking place, you know, um, with this mountainous area and uh, any person who spent uh, at least some time reading books, they know that military are often obsessed with the ability to take over the highest points uh, because this is an area that provides you very strategically important observation points as a minimal and uh, potentially even like a for possible attacks in case of escalation, it gives you a privilege because you can do more things. So it's really not the case that the last year's huge advance by Azerbaijan has settled things for now? It, it looked to the outside world like Azerbaijan had got what, back what it had been looking for for the last three decades and might be in the process of trying to settle it for good. But uh, clearly things are still very unsettled, right? It took some time for people to understand whether this is the end and we are kind of should start looking for a new status quo or this is just the beginning of something new. And uh, I think we are still in the process of figuring out uh, where we are heading, because on the one hand, you can see politicians both here in the region and in foreign capitals calling for some sort of process, some kind of relaunch of negotiations. But on the other hand, you know, all these grievances that have been there for decades, and especially with brutal war that took place last year, it's just kind of something that you cannot completely ignore. So we reset when you just um, push on the bottom and you say, that's it, you know, with this kind of new face, a new life, or you kind of turn and start with a new page, which hasn't happened. And uh, we are still kind of in the process of figuring out where we're heading. But when the fighting stopped, it was a Russian-mediated ceasefire. It seemed to be very strong. It's backed up 
with 2,000 peacekeepers. Uh, does it seem to you that the ceasefire has broken down or has it still got working elements that can be reinforced? I think especially during the first several months after the ceasefire, it was clear that there is no appetite for a new kind of, you know, incidents or new escalations. And I think that was also the time when the military on both sides, they were just busy building new positions and the trenches. And in fact, this uh, was something that I think many observers here in the region have missed because what was happening is that with positions, the new positions, especially in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone, they are much more dangerous than what we had before the 2020 war. The positions are very close to each other. Sometimes they can hear each other. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the positions are right next to the civilian areas. So this is what I think kept them busy. And uh, when they more or less kind of uh, felt confident about their new positions and also their new situation, uh, we started seeing more incidents taking place. And both inside Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone and also along the state borders. And why it's the kind of, I I separate with two, because in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone, you have Russian peacekeepers present. So it's kind of costlier to do things there, but it's still happening. So is the ceasefire working or not? You know, are its actual terms being fulfilled? In any conflict around the world, the ceasefire works only when the sides want it to work. It's not something that you can uh, enforce on the sides. When there are, you know, there is certain environment, then you can see incidents taking place. You can see taking place, you can see some fighting going on. There is an an intention to start puffing towards peace and invest into potential coexistence. Then you see people um, asking questions before opening a fire. And unfortunately, what's happening, what has been happening after the ceasefire, especially during the recent weeks, is that we can see that (laughs) with questioning (laughs) is not happening. It's more kind of let's continue fighting rather than actually thinking about whether this is something that can disturb emerging political process or potential peace process altogether. So, Alessia, you've written a bit, uh, both for us and most recently in a piece for ISPI about the Russian peacekeeping mission. Can you talk a little bit about um, what Russian peacekeepers are doing on the ground and how people look at their presence in the region? So the Russian peacekeepers, they are relatively small contingent. It's uh, just 2,000 people. And for those uh, who have been specializing in the conflict, they know that all past discussion, they considered a bigger number of peacekeepers potentially being deployed uh, to the area. They are stationed at 27 observation points or checkpoints. They are mainly located along the the road that uh, connects the Nagorno-Karabakh entity with Armenia, including the Lachin Corridor. And the rest, it's just spread, you know, on the main roads uh, inside Armenian populated areas of Nagorno-Karabakh. They have been doing quite a lot. So on the one hand, they are stationed at these checkpoints, but on the other, the people just go and ask them to help uh, for any kind of help they can People have been uh, asking the peacekeepers to help them with all different uh, problems that they have been having. And some of them have uh, nothing to do, in fact, with their observational mission in Nagorno-Karabakh. Like, for example, sometimes when people get detained, these are the Russian peacekeepers that go and uh, bring the person back. The same is about some cows. Sorry, when they get detained crossing the, the line of separation, they get detained by the other side. Yeah. Yeah, unintentionally. 
Yeah, you know, the new line after the 2020 war, the new line in many places, it even crosses the villages. So sometimes you just leave your house and you happen to be on Azerbaijani controlled territory. And um, I know that for some people, it's just kind of takes time to get... uh, for them to adopt this, uh, and especially with the case about the farming lands, you know, where people, in fact, were fencing their areas themselves so that they do not really <laughs> cross to the other side. So the Russian peacekeepers, they have been doing quite a lot in terms of assisting the people who are living next to the new life of separation, mainly because they are not seen uh, as an enemy or a threat to uh, either side. And because of that, they can cross easily and they can have this kind of function of, uh, you know, when you need something, they can deliver. They also go between the sides. And uh, so it's quite a lot. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Hugh and I are talking to our colleague, Alessia Vartanian, about the situation in and around the Nagorno-Karabakh region. So Alessia, you were talking about the work of the Russian peacekeepers, and you've written before, and you and I have talked about their probably quite unexpected involvement in the protection of livestock. Uh, Do you want to tell our audience about that? Well, this is kind of, uh, something really very natural, I would say. And, and uh, I don't think that this is something that they uh, <laughs> they were kind of uh, planning to do in the area. It's just the fact that sometimes cows cross the line. <laughs> they don't tend to <laughs> follow with border regimes and uh, people want them back. And unfortunately, they are afraid, you know, to cross themselves. And in that case, they call the Russian peacekeepers or they just kind of approach them asking for their help to bring their livestock back. You know, I mean, it may uh, look uh, funny, but uh, for some of these people, this is the only source of income and that feeds their families. So it's something that uh, I can tell you that many spoke about this as something that has been of great help to them. So if they ever do get a formal mandate, it will have to involve uh, the cows. For the moment, they don't have a mandate, uh, but I think their mandate will have to include many things. But uh, the primary goal, I think, is still to define their founding or primary function in Nagorno-Karabakh, because when you speak to people, some of them may have a feeling that Russian peacekeepers are there to protect them, which is not the case. Alyssa, one of the big changes in the region during this fighting last year was the new level of involvement of not just Russia with its peacekeepers and its now enhanced relationship to Armenia, but also this extraordinary new role of Turkey as an arms supplier, uh, best buddy of of Azerbaijan, and um, much more talk on both sides of being one people in two states and so forth. Is this something you notice when you're traveling around the region that these two countries have become much stronger and is one done better than the other out of all this? Azerbaijan and Turkey, they have been very close partners even before the war. What happened during this war, I think it's just kind of became more obvious for those who don't live in the region. And of course, I mean, the victory, the fact that Azerbaijan was able to win the war, that galvanized some people speculating about next steps. I personally think that when, for example, when speaking to people in Georgia or in Armenia, I don't uh, see much of the change in the rhetoric or in the wording that they are using when describing either Azerbaijan or Turkey, at least for the moment. So I would say that... So they conflate them. They, They think it's the same thing. 
I don't think that they think it is the same, to be honest. You know, Ulya, it's uh, something that kind of more a selling point for outsiders rather than the locals. How about the Russians? Are they much more present than they were or just more visible? Russians, they are definitely more visible, especially in Nagorno-Karabakh, because this is the area where they did not travel before and they never entered the region without Baku's authorization. And uh, now they have a key role in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's really very difficult to think about like Nagorno-Karabakh's future or the life of uh, ethnic Armenians uh, on the ground if, for example, the Russian peacekeepers have to pack and leave. That's probably the most dramatic change uh, in that sense for the whole region. So in the period between the two wars, uh, between the ceasefire in 1994 and the restart of um, large-scale fighting in September of 2020, the international community had given responsibility for mediating, regulating this conflict to the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, to its Minsk group. Now, the Minsk group was a lot of countries, but the Minsk group co-chairs, the United States, France, and Russia, were the primary negotiators carrying out shuttle diplomacy between Armenia and Azerbaijan, trying to find a way forward, trying to convince them to negotiate and to get some kind of peace deal. The OSCE Minsk group was not involved in the ceasefire deal in 2020, except that one of its co-chairs, Russia, brokered the deal. And Baku has declared that it does not see the group as useful anymore. Do the members of the OSCE men's group, do the co-chairs still do anything uh, with regard to this conflict? Uh, do they still have a role? And how do you think that's going to evolve? On the one hand, we have uh, Baku that is questioning the mandate of uh, the OSC means group. But on the other, we also have been seeing Azerbaijan's interest in a renewal of the process. There have been recently meetings of foreign ministers of Armenia and Azerbaijan, and it's clear that Azerbaijan tries to find a new meaning in this uh, engagement uh, with all the coaches, not just Russia. I think in a longer perspective, this is definitely the right way to go mainly because it's always better to put eggs uh, in different baskets so that you do not really have only Russia doing both management on the ground with peacekeeping, talks and many other processes that follow the, the ceasefire. But uh, you can also have some other uh, major actors like France and the US who can have their say in different areas related to your region. So I would say that the fact that uh, Baku kind of started reconsidering its position related to the OAC means group, and this is just the very initial stage, so it's too early to say that they're fully back, I would say that it's really plausible, and let's hope that this is to continue this way. And the European Union, does it have a role? The European Union has been uh, of great help uh, in terms of renewal of the OAC means group process. So we have been seeing the, some European officials traveling, and even foreign ministers, traveling to Yerevan and Baku, trying to massage them a bit, you know, trying to have some difficult conversations about this post-war situation. And I think that helped and that played a certain role, possibly even in the decision of making another attempt, making another try for having the OEC means group back. As Hugh said at the beginning, at our opening, the war that restarted in 2020 killed perhaps up to 7,000 people. Far more Armenians and Azerbaijanis have died over the last couple of years of COVID. What do you think the role of the COVID-19 pandemic, did it 
make this conflict possible? You know, kind of did it make the ceasefire more difficult? Do you think it had any effect at all? It's definitely, the pandemic definitely played a role in terms of uh, giving more opportunities for the war to start. Uh, just because, you know, it was uh, still summer, so it's kind of the first weeks after the start of kind of pandemic all around the world. And you may remember that people were not even traveling at that time. All the countries were keeping their borders closed. And when it was becoming obvious, basically, that we were heading towards the war, diplomats were not able to do their shuttle diplomacy. And in the past, that helped, really, because we were also on the brink of a new war during the uh, previous years. And what happened back then is that we had kind of a delegation or some foreign diplomats traveling, having very difficult conversations with Yerevan, uh, with people in Yerevan, with people in Baku. And that could help to somehow, you know, pacify or prevent another flare-up. That's one one side of that. But the other is, of course, I mean, fighting during the COVID, it's kind of uh, three, four times more difficult. It's just because, you know, we had some commanders that had to leave their troops just because they had COVID and they had to isolate. And that effectively left troops without any kind of uh, command for some time. On the other hand, I remember talking to some displaced Armenians and they were telling me how they had to make a choice, either get bombarded and stay in their apartment or get, go to the basement and get the COVID from their neighbors just because it was so busy. And in fact, during the war last year, almost every single person uh, who came from Nagorno-Karabakh had a COVID. We even had hotels in central Yerevan they were closed. No one could enter them just because the hotel with like over 300 people was where the displaced people with the COVID. So yeah, Fighting during the pandemic is a way more difficult than just kind of during normal times. Some people have said that there is this open-ended bit of the ceasefire agreement to do with a transportation corridor between Turkey and Azerbaijan that somehow is going to go through that southern slip of Armenia between Nakhchivan and Azerbaijan proper. Was this anything to do with the uh, latest upsurge in fighting, according to you? And can you just let us know, is, is that something that's realistically going to happen that a Turkish transportation corridor is going to open through Armenia in the near future? Is the fighting anything to do with that? You know, Hugh, there are many people, I would say majority of observers and analysts uh, here in the region, they're saying that uh, with fighting at the border, it has to do with Azerbaijan's intention to have a corridor. I personally find it a bit problematic just because it's really costly to march through the territory of Armenia with all its civilian settlements. Does it mean that you're basically going to occupy the whole region of Armenia. It's uh, we saw how difficult it was for Armenia to articulate its position on the territories that it control in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone, right, for more than 25 years. Is Azerbaijan going to sacrifice its uh, position just for doing that? I think there is another way for them to get a corridor, is just uh, to continue negotiations with the Russian mediation and find a way to agree with Armenians who are more than keen to have some sort of transportational unblocking for themselves because Armenia has been really suffering from with locked borders with both Azerbaijan and hopefully potentially that can lead to some process with Turkey as well. How much do they have to work with though, Alessia? I mean, you said that Baku is, is reconsidering its position with the uh, Minsk group and so forth, but are you seeing 
genuine uh, possibilities. It, it seems like Azerbaijan probably wants to bank what is newly won and perhaps go further. And it seems like Armenia must be in an extremely defensive position given the political unrest and the difficulties the government has had there. Is there actually fertile ground for peacemaking efforts? I think it's uh, never late to make an attempt to, to start uh, looking for a common ground. With two nations, Armenians and Azerbaijanis, they have been in conflict for a very long time. We have already three generations that were raised uh, with the conflict. And if you don't start really talking to each other and trying to find a common ground and some sort of peace, you can agree, then you have to build another wall, <laughs> you know, and uh, hoping that the other side, you will never ever see anyone from the other side. But we know that uh, it, it never happens this way, right? I mean, geography dictates that these two nations will have to live next to each other and that they will have to find a common language. And it's better to start early enough, you know, to start having these very difficult conversations with peace and uh, final decisions on Nagorno-Karabakh and the conflict between Armenians and Azerbaijanis. It is not going to come overnight. Uh, but if you don't start working on it, then it's kind of, you know, basically you keep your nation in some sort of prison, you know, when you have to get born <laughs> as an ethnic Armenian and the Persa, that means that you are supposed to be an enemy to ethnic Azerbaijanis. So at some point that will have to change. Well, I think that is a really great note to end it on. Alessia, thank you so much for coming on. This was really a tremendously rich and valuable discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Dear listeners, we hope you have learned as much as we have. Uh, for more of Crisis Group's extensive work on Nagorno-Karabakh, please check out our regional pages on the left-hand side of our website, crisisgroup.org. You should also follow Crisis Group and all of us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. I'm at Olia Oliker. And Alessia is at Alessia underscore V-A-R-T. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. And please do tweet at us with any suggestions you have for the podcast. We'll be looking out for them. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review on your favorite platform as well. Also, feel free to message us at podcasts at Christgroup.org if you have any suggestions for future shows. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts focused on Europe, Europod. You should check out some of the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who helps Ali and I prepare for each and every show. But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again in just two more short weeks. Bye-bye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.